One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, we are back for installment six of our theoretical exploration into the best ball landscape this year. We've got a couple guests this week, and I'm just going to jump right into it. We're going to welcome back John Warner. You've heard him twice already. No further introduction. Yeah, no further introduction needed there outside of uh, you're the man. Uh, Secondly, and this I am super excited to have this guest on. He is somebody that has basically made a living off of finding games and beating them and started off with chess to professional poker to professional, even best ball player. He shipped the BBM to last year, and that is a freaking grinder, Mr. Liam Murphy. Liam, how are we doing today, man? Doing great. Um, I think it's a little bit. Um, giving me too much credit to say I made a living off of chess or poker. Uh, I've, <laughs> no, I've been playing. I've been playing poker for a while. Had some, you know, binks here or there, but was not not really grind. You know, like I played in college, what whatnot sometimes. But and chess, I was a chess teacher, so I technically did make a living. But unless oh, you're one you of go. the top ten players in the world, you could not make a living playing chess. Uh, but yeah, yeah, was was lucky enough to sun run and bank the the BBM two. I think I was doing some sharp things. So like. I think you know. I think it was deserved, but you know, we should know that in such a large field, realizing your equity if you even have an edge is like, you know, once in a lifetime, probably. Yeah, man, and that's something that we're going to talk to because that's a direct, um, I guess, assertion for this idea about variance. We're going to get to that here shortly. But what I what is interesting to me is the overlaps in kind of the games that you have been gravitated to, you know, chess and poker and best ball or DFS or whatever the case may be in the fantasy scene, they all have these very interesting theoretical overlaps. What what do you think has given you an edge or been a we'll we'll call it your calling card for success um with your given your particular background? Yeah, I mean I think if you think about it, you can say like life is a game. And you could kind of think about most aspects of your life in a game sense. You know, like I taught chess to children. I highly encourage um, every parent out there to either have their kid learn chess or really any other strategic game. Um, You know, and I, you know, like I think I'm someone who really I'm competitive. I like to win and I'm generally best at game like when there are new games and there's not set theory. I think I'm a little stronger. Like I, I think I have a strong intuitive lean on what to do. Like I'm pretty good at Settlers of Catan. I'm pretty good, you know, all those fun board game strategy games. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say it like, you know, I have no problem working hard when I like something. But when we look at chess, when we look at poker, like to get really good at those games, it requires a lot of work, right? Which, you know, hard work is a valuable skill, but it's not, it's a little bit less sexy to me to just say like, oh, I grinded you know, 4,000 hours in the lab and now I'm really good at something like it's a little bit different when you just have an intuitive lean for, for what is, what is right. And so I really like best ball that it's so new. It's so hard and complicated to know what's even correct. 
it's it's such a long time period to even know if you are a profitable player in the long run. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think I think uh, it's just like the the game element of it all. Yeah, that's I, I that's an interesting point that you brought up about game about best ball and being so new. And when we talk about like your particular background with chess and poker, and then now into like best ball, like two of those three, the the former two have been solved. We'll we'll call it by a computer algorithm that algamates um, what the optimal move given the action up to that point, right? So. You know, that's where we talk about GTO and that's where we talk about these supercomputer programs that have, that have, you can input previous moves in chess and it'll, you know, spit out the optimal outcome from a, uh, a percentage breakdown solution, right? With that being the case and with best ball like being so new, do you see that as kind of the, the future of this game? Like, are, are you seeing the potential for solvers to come around, for these supercomputers to come around and, balance like your decision tree your game tree you know weigh the previous picks in a draft and tell you like who is the optimal 17th and 18th round pick here is well i i think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that the games like chess or poker first are solved Mm -hmm. like let's take chess for example we don't know like if if chess was solved we would be able to know if the game is a theoretical draw if the game is like, if white is always supposed to win, if black is always supposed to win, but the games are so complicated and we don't have the computing power to know what is what, like we, we have made better and better and better chess playing machines. And I think it's really interesting to um, realize that the, the machine learning programs in place today are different than the brute force calculating machines of the past. Um, And same with poker, like, we might we might know how to play GTO. We can we can create algorithms that can beat people, but um, you know it's only GTO if everyone else is performing GTO at your table. So like if yeah. you just plop the computer program into like the WSOP live field, it's not like <laughs> it's not like that machine would be winning contests. Like yeah, maybe they'd be plus EV, but it's such a high variance spot. Again, it's so it's so complicated. We won't solve these games. And then with best ball. You know, like I put a tweet out a while ago. Um, you can follow me at Chesleyum, but the on Twitter and there it, it was kind of like talking about the the machine, like you know how every game I've been involved with has been beaten by um, artificial intelligence machines. You know, mm-hmm. and whether that can happen, whether that will happen for best ball, part of me wants to say that. You know, like best, like look, it's a huge contest that these pro sites are are running. But in terms of like the gambling market, you know, like there is very little financial incentive um, because if you're the best best Paul player in the world, you're not going to win the contest every year. Nor will mm-hmm. you win it probably in a lifetime, right? Like, um, it's it's just such a massive field. It's just so much chaos that can happen, and so like. That part of me wants to say like, oh, it's not really worth a financial investment to train like, you know, AlphaGo, like Google's program on this. On the other hand, it's a really fun, complicated task that I could just see some smart, sharp people doing it for either they're interested in it or just because they can, you know, like people grind edges, uh, you know, in everything. 
Yeah. They grind edges in video games. Like exactly. I mean, yeah. If you see something with 2 million up top, someone's going to try and find an edge somewhere to grind it. Yeah. And when, I love the examples that you used about like we call these games solved, but there's a lot of assumptions that go into that, right? You have to, when you talk about game theory and like optimizing your performance for a particular game against the field, you have to make certain assumptions about what the field's tendencies are, um, which is the, the reason that like, even though we have these supercomputer outputs and, you know, we have these, these GTO trainers and uh, pile solvers that in poker that that tell us what is the optimal at a given frequency given the action prior to all of these assumptions go into that calculation and if there's one piece of information that is not accurate in your assumptions that's going to completely influence the output of that program so when you yeah, think I about had Matt, I had real quick I had Matt yeah. Berkey on my professional poker player Matt Berkey who uh-huh. I mean I've not spent any time with the PO solvers or the charts or anything, really. Um, I'm just like a live player, you know, like I, I'll play online if, it, if it's there, but I'm a degenerate. But he was yeah. talking, he's an authority on the subject, and he was talking about kind of what you're saying, where he's like, look, there, like GTO is a misnomer because it makes all these assumptions, and like you don't need to be doing, like, if, if your assumptions are wrong, well, then. GTO is useless in that sense. So like, well, even I if think, your assumptions off are, by a, even if your assumptions off by a fraction of a percent, right? Like if you're talking about a range versus a range and like you're attributing this player to have like a 30% range when they in fact only have like a 24% range in that spot. Well, everything you've done after that calculation is broken. Mm-hmm. Like for future streets. So yeah, I'm just, yeah. Agreeing with the point. Yeah. And I mean, I like, so I think even like the best online players, probably if they're playing live, like I don't, they're probably, you know, uh, and we have to, we have to discern like, I don't know, a 200 person 25K field is wildly different than a $400 Colossus 20,000 person field, right? And like how, how GTO and how exploitative you need to play and how aware, how aware like the, the field is like, I was just at the WSOP. People are just clicking buttons, me included. You know, I feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know so what's that's... crazy is though. Wh- sorry, w- you know what's crazy about that though is like when you're playing against an entire like table full of guys that are like on the nth degree of almost perfectly GTO'd solve. Like they're using like randomizers on their like Apple Watch to mm-hmm. distribute frequencies or like so the, the or they're like the way they cut the chips yeah like they're they're using ways to just use numbers to to randomize their spots yeah um, or, it's, it's, or like the way they peel their cards like if i have two black cards then you know like I, like yeah yeah so that's that's another interesting point that you bring up about um the different field and the assumptions that we can glean from the uh, you know perceived strength of the field that we're playing and that goes in from into anything from like the playing on underdog the bbm is a $25 entry you go over to draftkings their major contest is a $5 entry over on drafters it's a $10 entry and then you have these varying it's field 20 sizes 20 on drafters 20 sorry on drafters. 20 20 on drafters so like you have these varying field sizes as well and these varying price points and there's different assumptions and uh, that basically is going to influence the output of our game theory discussion because you have to tailor the output, which would be your strategy, off of those assumptions. And if the field is 
a million freaking people that's a $5 entry, that barrier to entry is much lower than say underdog where it's a, you know, five times the amount of money per entry. Now we tar- start, you know, moving that to, if you're maxing this thing and it's 150 entries each, uh, that's, you know, on the order of magnitude of five times more money sunken. So there's definitely different skill elements and assumptions that you have to make based on the different contests that you're drafting in. And we'll get into a little in a little bit, but that's uh, a definitely an interesting um, observation and assertion there that I wanted to pull out. Real quick for me, the way I think about it is when I'm talking about best ball, I'm generally talking about the really large field GPPs. Mm-hmm. And I think even from that, we should probably put DK in its own bucket just because what's happening on DraftKings is just like wild. You it's know, absurd. Compared, compared <laughs> to some of the other platforms like underdog drafters and whatnot. So that's generally how I talk about it. Like obviously if you're playing the DK uh, 2K buy-in, that is a totally different discussion than what we are mostly talking about today. Yep. I dig it. So we, uh, we talked about that kind of buzzword and this is something near and dear to my heart. I bring it up almost every episode and uh, in all my teachings and writings and studies and all that good stuff. But that's that, you know, that buzzword of variance. So all these games that we've alluded to earlier have some form of variance. You know, in poker, obviously, we have no control over opponents' actions. We have no control over the cards that are going to come on a community board. In chess, we have no control over opponent actions. We can influence those, but we don't really have control, right? So when we talk about best ball and when we talk about the NFL, like just foot the game of football, what are these different I guess, avenues of variance or variant acts that come into play in your decision-making process? Well, I mean, we, we kind of talked about it, but like the variance of best ball is arguably the, the craziest you can have. Mm-hmm. You know, one, your, your timeline for your results is once a year, typically, right? So yeah, that feedback one, loop. You, you have one, yeah, your feedback loop is extremely slow and it comes down to one single slate. The NFL is inherently chaotic because of injuries, because people like Antonio Brown will retire at halftime. <laughs> Calvin Ridley. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah. So you're just, you're just dealing with as much chaos as you can. So, and I don't think I necessarily was thinking about this when I built my portfolio last year, but it kind of like after I won, I kind of like took a look at what I did and I, and I thought about it and I, and what I Something I I did good last year is I really leaned into the variance, right? Like mm-hmm. I think because we we have to be, uh, you know, these fields are so massive that like we can't even conceptualize how big they are. Um, there's some things we can do to optimize for that. Where you know, like I you know, I've I've it's widely known I'm not afraid to be way overexposed to a player. Like, look, if he gets injured, I lose, just like every other year, and we should be looking at how the prize pool breaks down. And the way it basically breaks down is if you get first place, you've won. If you get 10th place, even, you know, like looking at underdog, 10th place is 20K, mm-hmm. first place is 2 million. So 10th place is 1%. And getting 10 out of 455,000 people is an incredible feat, but it's really not worth that much money, you know? So, like, you really need to be the best for the contest to you know have a chance to make any money and it's just like 
we should be totally optimizing for week 17. And I think we should be building our portfolio so that when we're right, we're really right. And when we're wrong, we lose just like every other year where if we don't get first, we lose basically. Yeah, that's been one of, I think, the biggest negative tendencies that I've seen from the field is managing variance on an individual roster. And we talk about like looking, building your whole portfolio of the 150 drafts you do on underdog, if you're going to max that the 150 drafts you do on, um, on the other platforms on DraftKings or drafters, you know, whatever, whatever your portfolio is, that is how you manage the variance. However, you, variant you want to be that is how you do it on individual rosters just like you said we need to be embracing as much variance as we can possibly stomach and one of the clearest examples of that i think this year is the discussion on running backs and where to draft them everybody thinks their way is right you know but really like if you're talking about managing your variance across a portfolio and giving your your self-exposure to varying avenues on the game tree, we should really optimally have exposure to all kinds of different builds. It's not like you go into a draft and it's like, based on my draft position, like if I'm drafting in the three spot, I know like my build is going to end up looking like this. Like, no, dude, we need to give ourselves exposure to like every potential avenue on the game tree that is plus EV. And the thing about it is the field's reaction to what is the optimal way to draft is so recency bias laden in that people just look to what worked last year and they're like, Oh, okay, well, uh, anchor running back worked last year and I'm just going to build all my teams this year utilizing those concepts. And it's like, well, dude, we have to realize the amount of variance and the amount of, of noise that is in that sample of, you know, a sample size of one there's all kinds of different noise and, and variance that's in that. So, um, yeah, I you love know, given that, that Mark, given that like Liam, do you think there is currently a correct way to build? Well, I want to say a couple of things on that. I think first there's no better example than what you're saying than last year. The winner of best ball mania one was Justin Herzig. Mm-hmm. He utilized a hyper, um, fragile build where you draft, for running backs pretty early, like in a large percentage of his portfolio. And then you hammer volume at wide receiver. And what we saw is the field was that because it worked the year before, the field was doing this at like in a, like a crazy amount, like a crazy amount were building high, hyper fragile builds. And then, you know, like, of course, the draft landscape is wildly different each year. And whether something is good especially for like a first round pick, a second round pick kind of comes down to how many points did they score in the fantasy playoffs slash week 17. Um, I think it's like, if you wanted to say just because it's, uh, you know, like personally what I do is I utilize all sorts of builds. Um, I generally try to get weird with a large percentage of my portfolio and structures in the sense that I'm trying to utilize structures. The field is not utilizing at a high clip. Um, Love it. Just to be just to be different. But if you wanted to say, hey, on underdog, it's half one PPR. I'm going to start every single team with two running backs in the first two rounds. And then I'm going to take my third running back no earlier than round 10 for every single 150 teams. I don't think that's necessarily wrong to do. Um, or if you wanted to say, hey, I want to do zero running back for all of them, right? Like 
you're again, you're leaning into the variance where, okay, if you're wrong that season and, and actually you need to start like maybe you need to start Cooper Cup to be, you know, able to even win. Um, it, you know, like, or you need to start two wide receivers because two of them smash. Like, it's not wrong to do it. You're just you're just making your portfolio as big of a hit miss as you can if you were to lean into one style. Personally, I don't really do that. I just kind of let the draft fall. I utilize a bunch of different builds, but a large percentage, I'll try to get weird. Like things that the field and more importantly, sharp people have labeled as bad. Things weird, like like <laughs> I had a I had a four quarterback team on underdog with only 18 rounds that got like fifth in the puppy. I've built four tight end teams in the past. I'll build zero running back teams where I don't take the first running back until like the 12th round and then hammer seven of them or, you know, like the things like that. Yeah, I love it. And one of the, cause basically the underlying like metric and measure of success is in these contests. And again, we're talking large field is like first or bust. So if that's the case, and again, it, it depends on the prize pool and the breakdown, but if that's, largely the case based on how top heavy these contests are there is inherent value to doing things that the field simply isn't doing i one of the things that has given me a lot of pushback this year is i've been drafting probably six to seven percent of i've almost maxed underdog but probably about six to seven percent of my portfolio this year is three running back builds we talk about like people just kind of instantly scoff at that idea. And it's like, well, nobody's doing that. And if those three running backs stay healthy, because there are going to be three running backs in the NFL that stay healthy the whole year this year. Like if, if they just happen to be on the roster that I put together like that, like there's an inherent edge to getting more exposure to the higher variance positions of wide receiver and tight end. So again, we I can love take that further. where like using your example or like hyper fragile. It's a bit easier because you do four running backs, but uh-huh. of the, let's say 5% of the field are building three running back teams of that 5%. I would guess 95% are getting their three running backs before round five. So if yep. you build a three running back team and your third running back is in round 10, like let's say you start CMC, uh, Javante Williams, and then like James cook. And like, you're stopping there. Like, you can get weird within the structure to be even different than like the few percent that are even doing what you're doing. Yeah. I love that. Man. 100%. John, I, I, I could feel you wanting to jump in there, man. You got something <laughs> to say on that? <laughs> well, I, I, okay. So I'm listening to this whole thing. And then um, Liam's talking a lot about like finding different ways to get different, but then he's also saying that he's not afraid to take like a strong exploitative stance on one isolated player. So from my point of view, does it matter that you're balancing all these different builds if you are tied to one specific player? I mean, like, so I think you're talking about the fact that I had 60% Gabriel Davis last year and some, you know, quite some other stands. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, I, like a 10th, you know, a 60% exposure to a 12th round player is not going to make or break your year. Fair you know? enough. Yeah. It, it's just not right. So like Gabriel Davis could have been a zero. It would not have really impacted my portfolio. What did happen is Gabriel Davis gave us a 22 point week 15 game, AKA the quarterfinals. And therefore of my 19 teams that made the um, quarterfinals, which is a bit below expectation mathematically, I had, you know, like six teams live in the semifinals, 
which was way over the field, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so leaning into the variance there. Now, why did I take 60% Gabriel Davis last year? There was a couple of reasons. A, I thought he was undervalued. B, I thought he was a good football player. C, I thought he would score a lot of touchdowns. D, I thought Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley were 35 and 33. And the chance that they would slow down by the, by the time that the money is won was pretty high, right? Um, yeah. It didn't, he didn't really hit his ceiling outcome in the regular season, nor he, like he only gave us one usable week in the fantasy playoffs too. So he wasn't like that big of a smash, but I think like money wise, yeah, you can only measure like your ROI. However, I think you can, you can, you should feel good if you are drafting players who next year are much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Talking about right. my portfolio, yeah. there were some big hits. There were some big misses. I had a lot of Michael Pittman. I had a lot of Mike Williams. I had a lot of Jamar Chase, who is the reason I won the contest. I actually mm-hmm. looked at my teams last night from last year, and I think I had a quarterfinal team that missed the semifinals by like two points. And I need to sit down and do the math, but I think that team actually might have placed even something crazy like second place in the finals. And it would have wow. it would have definitely advanced in the semifinals because it had T. Higgins and it had Jamar Chase on it. Um, yeah, so like T, T Higgins gave us that 40 point game in the semifinals. So, and I had Mark Andrews, right? Like, um, I, I'm going to sit down and look at that, but I think I'm getting a little off track. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Um, speaking <laughs> to that though, have you gone all the way back and reverse engineered like a whole bunch of strategy based on your own personal profile last year? I think I was doing some things better last year and some things worse. Um, this year is so different in that the volume of drafts I have done and the field has done is way more than at any point in previous history. Um, I had you a mean lo- time wise. You mean timeline yeah, wise? Yeah, just like the amount of drafts that have been done by uh, July twenty first is never yeah. like we've never seen this yeah. volume of drafts before. Um, yeah, like I'm pretty sure we have more entrants in Best Ball Mania 3 than all of Best Ball Mania 2 um, at this point. Mm-hmm. 30% yeah. of 455,000, that's probably close to 155. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I guess, I guess not. Like, I guess it's not quite there, but it's, it's close. No, uh, but the, yeah, the point still holds. Yeah, it's just... it's just what. So some of the things I think I did a little... Like, I looked back at some of my teams and I was like, wow, like, this team was real fragile. Or I maxed two tight ends on a lot teams last year and i've been doing more three tight end teams now something i think i was doing a little bit better last year is in my later round picks i think i was take like i had like 20 percent jeff wilson jr or something which was infinite over the field because he was injured and i i literally was taking him with the idea of he is injured he will come back in november the playoffs is all that mattered and he actually gave you a usable week in the playoffs amazingly he was on my my winning team um but I, I, I'm going to make a video on my channel kind of like looking through my past playoff teams to like fully get my thoughts there. But love that. Um, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think I'm a much better player this year. In other ways, um, it's just like w- wild how different the landscape is year to year. Like this year, all of the wide receivers are pretty much juiced, the elite guys compared to years past. So how we adjust to that like a ton of historical research in fantasy football doesn't account for how the fantasy football landscape changes year to year. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There was a couple of things. First, you mentioned your channel. Where can they YouTube channel? 
Um, it's kind of hard because there's like other Liam Murphys on YouTube, but if you have Twitter, just look up Chess Liam. It's linked on my profile. Or you just, I think if you type in Liam Murphy fantasy, you'll probably find it. Uh, Beautiful. The second thing that was interesting that I picked out what you were just saying is your discussion and your changing of, I guess, stance a little bit on the tight end position. And I was just literally working through the tight end position in my head last night. And with the changing dynamics of just the, the general NFL and then break that down further into like the, the tight end usage routes run, you know, elite tight ends, all that kind of the landscape of tight ends in the NFL. It's probably 2022 is going to be probably like more boom or tight end position than we have even seen in recent history already from a position that has historically been extremely boomer bust. And what I'm getting at there is the importance of getting in the end zone at the tight end position. So if you think about like, how can I give myself increased exposure or I guess the chance to score one or multiple even touchdowns in the money rounds, which again, we, we've narrowed down to week 17 only, there's an interesting pro, I guess, argument for drafting three tight ends on almost all of your rosters. And obviously that depends and, and that depends on roster construction, but I took that one step further and I posted something on Twitter that was like, hey, there's leverage in a couple of different instances with respect to the tight end position. One, like because it's so boomer bust, people feel rather comfy if they get one of the top five tight ends. And what does that translate to? That translates to those are going to be two tight end builds. If you carry that thought process further, there is inherent leverage in grabbing an elite tight end, you know, one of the top five and still taking three tight ends because there, <laughs> we talk about advancing in the playoff rounds. You got to be, you know, one of 10 and then one of 16 and then one of 470 or whatever it is in the finals for DraftKings or for underdog. We're talking about if like, if you're taking two tight ends and you're not taking your second one and round like 14, right? Because you feel comfy with that first one you are giving yourself a very small margin for error to keep. You're effectively making one tight end builds. Exactly. So like there is, there's a whole lot of leverage in like the rosters with three tight ends. There's leverage in, and this is the one that I brought out today. It was like, if tight end scoring is so closely married to scoring, getting in the end zone, are there going to be, or could there be, a tight end that scores multiple times in week 17. If that's the case, what would optimal be? Well, optimal would be ensuring that that tight end is correlated with his quarterback because that directly influences both scoring. So yeah, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. I, I think my thought process there is done, please. Okay. I think the tight end position is one of the most interesting positions in fantasy. I w- I've actually been thinking about it a lot. I'm going to write an article on this. I was going to put out a tweet actually last night, but it was like 2 a.m. I was like, I'll save it for today. Um, yeah, I just think the tight end is like one of the most disrespected and one of the most uh, hardest to predict. Like we're, we're getting better and better at picking out the good running backs, the good wide receivers, the good quarterbacks. We're pretty bad at picking out the tight end. Part of it is such a variance thing. Um, last year, I built a lot of two tight end teams. Generally, 
not wait, like not waiting though, like not Austin Hooper and you know whoever. Like mm-hmm. my winning team had Noah Fant and Mike Kosecki. And the reason why I was doing two a lot is, you know, my thought was like if you can hit on a like these are it's the lowest scoring position. So if you can hit on a guy, give yourself another dart at wide receiver at running mm-hmm. back. Um, this year I've done more three tight end kind of because like the way it played out is. I had like a 2% owned Noah Fant in the finals and like a 5% owned Mike Kosecki. Now, part of that is because Mark Andrews was 50% owned. So just most yeah. of the field had Mark Andrews, right? So like ownership in the playoffs is a whole nother discussion. How that sorts out, it's pretty fascinating. If you weren't in the contest, you probably weren't even like aware. Maybe like, just the know, information. You just wouldn't even think about this, like how the yeah. ownership condenses over the rounds. And... um. So this year I've done more three tight end just kind of because especially on underdog where, yeah, basically if your tight end doesn't score a touchdown, he's a bad pick. And if he does, he's a great pick, especially if he's low owned and taking Mm -hmm. three gives you such a good shot at having a low owned high leverage spot in the finals to separate like my 3% owned Noah Fant allowed me to win a million dollars, you know, like so getting, getting that guy is really important. And then, you have to start it like just in terms of like advancing. You have to start a tight end every week. That's one out of your eight spots. The people that like wait on tight end and take two on their two tight ends are like Austin Hooper and Brevin Jordan on underdog. Like, I just don't think those teams can win. Like, look, I have some rosters with those guys on them. It's easier on DK when you can go volume at it, but Mac, Max, like stopping at two and having those two guys be late. You're just drawing, you're putting so much stress on the rest of your roster. So I really like the tight end position. Last year, my portfolio was chock full of the elite guys because I really do think if we think about week 17, the tight end position will play out in one of two ways. Option one, you'll have an elite guy and that guy will explode. And if you don't have that guy, you don't win. Option mm-hmm. two, a low owned, high, high leverage guy scores two touchdowns, scores one touchdown, whatever, has a good game. And that guy wins, you know, like, so maybe it's like, yeah, in some senses you, I wouldn't say every, like, yes, just take three every time, even if you have elite, because it can play out that, you know, Mark Andrews goes 20 points, 20 points, 20 points. And then that's all you need. Like, yeah. So sometimes you want to stop at one or, or two elite guys. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I, I really like that thought process. I'll, I'll preface or go, go ahead, John. Okay. I, I one, one thing I want to jump in there for is, is the ownership, the notion of ownership, because you're one of the few people that we've spoken to or that I've spoken to that it's brought it up. And I think it's, I think it's so critical. We've talked a little bit about it on this pod before, but not necessarily only week 17. How else can we leverage the pool in terms of ownership? And the way we've talked about it in the past is there's 216 guys drafted every single draft and let's call it uh, 187 of them are the exact same over and over and over again. How can we leverage that? Or is that something you're even looking to leverage? Yeah. So obviously like, you know, I'm not the first person to point out that you can, you can take a guy in the late round picks that's not getting drafted and that's a way to secure um, a low differentiation, guy. yeah. Just in gen- just in general, right? But some of the playoff ownership is out of your control, right? Like, 
Gabe Davis was something like 5% owned going into the quarterfinals. All this information is on underdog if 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 uh, anyone wants to look it up. But he was like 5% owned going into the playoffs. And then he had a 22-point game. And then he became like 50% owned in the semifinals. So like how ownership mm-hmm. condenses is pretty wild. I think that's out of our control a little bit. However, if we, you know, like I'm a proponent for getting weird in the first two rounds to get unique player combinations. Like that's mm-hmm. that's something that we can control. So some of it's out of our control. Some of it, some of it we can control, or at least we can try to get different if the guy is like a chalk player. And when, yeah. when you're speaking to getting weird in those like first two rounds, like how far will you stray? Like, will you stray, you know, 10 picks ADP? Will you stray, you know, build out a certain stack that might be unique that not other people are getting to? Like, what's your thought process there? I think when we do it in the off season matters. So mm-hmm. in general, we want to be doing like, we want to be doing this later in the off season when we have, especially if you're in the best ball, like I've been in the best ball streets since day one for underdog. So I'm mm-hmm. aware of where players ADPs were to begin. I'm aware of like roughly how many teams were done at that point. So, and I think it depends on the draft landscape year over year. So like last year, I got weird a lot because I wasn't taking Derrick Henry. I wasn't taking Alvin Kamara. I wasn't taking Ezekiel Elliott. So at those slots, I was taking Stefan Diggs. I would take Austin Eckler sometimes, right? Like I was getting the unique player combo of Stefan Diggs plus two, three turn players that no one else has in the field or the, the percent that does is like 1%. But if you start doing that in June or July, like let's say you were doing it with Mike Evans. Well, now Mike Evans is a one-two turn player, you know, like because the ADPs change a lot for these later round guys, um, it, you know, like if you do it too early, you can kind of burn yourself where someone else can just do it at ADP and scoop more value than you kind of like, we don't Mm want to, like we want to trust the market a little bit. So it depends year over year. I've been doing it less this year because I think that like, the top of the draft is so strong. Like I don't want to give away any exposure to CMC, Taylor, Cup, Chase, or Jefferson. Where last year, I had no problem giving up exposure to Kamara, Derrick Henry, Zeke. You know, so it it really depends year over year and when we do it in the in the draft season. Yeah, I like that yeah. a lot. The way that I have kind of brought that thought process up and this is something that I brought up not too long ago in one week season discord was the player combinations. Um, you know, we talk about the field tendencies and like last year you talked about like no one was paying attention to week 17. That was like a massive edge for you. Well, like this year, like I won't say everybody, but a large portion of the field is paying attention to these week 17 correlations. So if you have that going in knowledge and we put that into our like common knowledge bucket. Like we know this information, everybody else knows this information. Well, then you start to get very condensed combinatorial ownerships out of those first five rounds. And what I mean by that is like the ADP for the past two months has made it. So Cooper cup is very naturally correlated with either Mike Williams or, um, uh, Keenan Keenan Allen. Allen. Yeah. So like, if you know, like going in, like a lot, a large portion of these rosters are going to be built with, Cooper Cup in the first, and then either Keenan Allen or Mike Williams at the two-three turn. Like there doesn't take a lot for us to build leverage into that scenario. So that's a. Yeah, I think, it's, 
So, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just tying that bow onto that saying it's a, it's a very interesting like thought process um, in those first like five rounds, we'll say. Yeah, I think it's really hard because I think we're in like to, to know what the field is doing. We're in such a bubble on fantasy football Twitter, but let's assume that a winner is going to be someone from fantasy football Twitter, Twitter or someone who knows week 17 is important and is like game stacking, right? Like we can get different from sharp people. So like last year, I'll use an example. It's like a lot of sharp people who I respected were taking Jerry Judy and LaVisca Chanel. And I was not, right? Like I, I just was out. I had 0%. And so now my portfolio is not that different from these guys, but I am zeroing out a position that I know that they are going over the field on. So I'm getting different from people I think are, are sharp, right? So I think there's other things we can do like that. Like maybe all the zero running back guys, like take, you know, like they're not taking a guy like David Montgomery. So like you can take some of these guys that are not that sexy in these type of builds to get different from the sharp field. It, it's it's like a mind meld to like think through that and you're ultimately guessing, but I think there's some edge to grind there. I love it, man. John. Yeah, I, I, I want to jump in on that one second because it, it when you're talking about this, you're talking about Henry last year, you're talking about Kamara last year. Um, it, it sounds like you do advocate to have like flat out fades. Yeah, absolutely. And I, okay. I think it I think it depends year over year. And like again, you have 150 entries. You ultimately lose if you don't get first, like is kind of how you can think about the contest. Like yep, of course, I agree. If, I, if you get if you get 500k, 250k, I would count that as a win. But like if you get tenth, you've lost. Sorry. Um like 20k is just not like it's not enough that you can fire for 10 more years and ensure you'll be a profitable player in my opinion. So I, you know, I think way too many people play not to lose rather than to win. Like, yeah. like last year I, I got so much pushback on the, like last year, I think the prevailing wisdom from like smart people even was you need to advance as many teams as you can because it's as many shots on goal. And I mm-hmm. was flat out against that. And I think a lot of people have come hip to the math behind that where it's like just flat out wrong like one extra advanced team does barely nothing to ensure you a team in the finals yeah and we talk about like a the ev of a team advancing to the second round on underdog it's like what is it it's a 25 dollars buy-in it's 35 dollars for a team advancing so you talk about like how many teams you would have to actually advance out of your 150 to break even if you're only worried about getting teams to the next round, it's like 117 of your 150 teams would have to advance to the second yeah. round. Yeah, so like, the, I, yeah. I, like if you it's, advance at all 150, I did the math, you're not guaranteed, like you only get a team to the finals about like 60% of the time. That's with all 150 advancing. All 150 making the quarterfinals yeah. and then just performing at mathematical expectation with the one at 10 and one, one at 16. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy because you're you're effectively trading like i've talked about this before with with mark here where it's like you're every entry you're throwing in regardless of what edge you think you're basically trading $25 for $23 and then to try and protect that $23 makes no sense when that $23 can be like 
whatever it is, 12K if you make the final week, right? And then grow exponentially from there. So to spend 25 and then protect 23, like that makes no sense. Yeah, you're talking about like an expected value per round, right? Correct. Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah. talking about uh, essentially. Yeah, and, c- and keep in mind the the 12k EV for week 17, uh, like 14 people are going to be above that EV level. Yeah, just, be- just because of how high the first prize and second prize is. Like right. Of course. Yeah. 400 exactly. plus people are getting less than the EV. You know, flat flat EV of advancing there. Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, that's freaking ridiculously good stuff, man. The next thing that kind of leads us naturally, very naturally, is we talked about this idea of like early round leverage and not being afraid to mix up your builds within those rounds. You mentioned a couple of guys that you were extremely overweight on in the late rounds. Is that something that you're carrying forward into this year is not being afraid to take stands and, and build heavy ownership on you know round 15 plus guys? You know, I don't even know if I've sat down and like fully thought about it just because I I mean, I will be swayed by camp reports if I think it's good news. Like two years ago, I had like a hundred percent Chase Claypool um, just because he was like free on DK and, Mm -hmm. and it worked out right. Like last year, I don't think I was quite as high. You know, I got more exposure to people late and I'm kind of doing the same now. Like I definitely have the the buttons I like to click and the buttons I don't like to click. Um, like in general, if you're old, I'm not clicking you like, <laughs> yeah. like, like AJ Green, AJ I'm not Green. Clicking Mark Ingram. Like yeah. these are guys who probably will advance maybe at a decent rate, but I just don't see them burying me when all the money matters. And so um, in general, I'm trying to take high upside swings with almost every single pick of my portfolio per draft because you need to build a super team. Yeah. I love it, man. Do and again, you, uh, go sorry, ahead. Mark, do, Liam, do you bucket players like in, um, like not necessarily in tiers, but in like profiles like that? Like Mark and I really like to talk about like certain players that cert- fit certain profiles, archetypes. like archetypes. Yeah, archetypes of players opposed to like player names, for instance. Do you do like a similar bucketing kind of mentality? I view players in tiers. Like I, I view tiers and I look at the draft board and I generally don't want to be jumping a tier when a tier is still left at a different position, right? Like we can take a quarterback like Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence. Like these are, and, and Tua, like these are guys who go like two rounds after Derek Carr and Aaron Rodgers. Guys, I'm just like so much more confident can have huge seasons. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I don't, I don't want to be reaching to that next tier just because the previous tier is gone. Um, it, it, like, archetype wise, like, I know some people think about that, like, oh, I need, like, because I have this, I need to get like this type of player on this roster to make it work. And like, I'll do that sometimes, but I'm also okay just going all upside and being like, okay, let's just try to get to the playoffs, you know, because. Ultimately, I'm okay if I'm in low scoring, uh, you know, w- low scoring w- weeks one through fourteen, or I want to be in the lowest scoring quarterfinals and semifinals groups, right? Like mm-hmm. I have no control over that, but that's what mm-hmm. I I want to have happen, right? Like I don't I don't need the best teams for those weeks. I just need to get my team to the finals. 
Yeah. And that's also an interesting thing that we've talked about on this podcast before. And that's this idea that like two teams out of every draft are advancing both on, you know, on, on majority of these major contests. Right. So if, if you're allowed that like additional slop, we'll call it like, you don't need to have all these, all your teams advancing first out of their draft. Like we can accept more variance on rosters because of the fact that two teams are advancing. Uh, you would probably prefer draft. all 150 to be the second team mm-hmm. advancing if you could, because it essentially means that you have lower ownership going into the playoffs. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And never thought it, about it like that. It also means yeah. that your builds like, are feel, different. Like, I don't think people realize like DK used to be only the top advance and it uh-huh. does, it does so much to the contest to do top two advance rather than one from a theoretical yeah, approach. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, John. Go ahead, dude. No, 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 no. I was just adding more to that. I, there's one more thing I want to touch on there, Liam, is that we're talking about the tiers and bundling players and this sort of thing. Outside of like the quote unquote in draft uh, room experience and that process, like w- what kind of additives, external software, building projections, um, that sort of stuff, what, what kind of stuff like that are you doing on your own? Zero. Um, I watch almost every, like I watch Red Zone every week and I watch the Bills game and I'll watch yep. the night games and I'll, you know, like I watch every single NFL game. So I'm relying on film knowledge there. I watch the NFL draft to get familiar with the rookies and I'll look up hype tapes. Um, I'm not crunching. I don't look at other people's rankings. I'm not crunching projections and whatnot. It's a, it's a mixture of like trusting my own takes. I read fancy football Twitter all the time, you know, like, but at the same, and I'll, and I'll listen to some other trusted content people, but at the same time, it's like, you're almost like, if you think you're good at this, you want to kind of like sit down. Like if I never listened to any content last year, arguably I would have advanced more teams because you don't want to like lose your first gut opinions from other people, you know, because it's so easy to sell someone on a player. Um, but it's a, it's a very like holistic, chaotic process that like I don't think it's that repeatable. It's just how I do it, you know. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because we've we've referred to the idea of like ECR expert consensus rankings, uh, both like in the DFS scene and then obviously what Fantasy Pros does for best ball and season long, and how inherently flawed that process is. Um, it's pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think I'm just new to fantasy football Twitter, so like I've only been on Twitter for like a year, so um this is like this year's different because I there's, you know, there's more analysts I follow and whatnot. Like last year who did I listen to? I listened to ETR. I listened to like at, you know, Adam Levitt. I I'm not I wasn't a subscriber. I listened to like the free pods with Levitan and mm-hmm. I listened to like Leone stuff. And I would listen, you know, I would listen to like the Swole cast and Pete Overzet because they made me laugh. And ultimately, like, <laughs> yeah. most of us are going to, and I, and I think like, but like Pete is such, like he talks about a lot of sharp stuff, but we should try to find people that make us laugh because most of us are going to lose. Like if you're treating yeah. as a serious investment, most of us are going to lose. So find a way to have a good time with it. And that, that goes to so many more aspects of life in general. But yeah, that's super sharp. I love that. Um, the last kind of thing that I want to talk about, um, and again, thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely amazing uh, to jam with you and pick your brain here. But it's this idea of imperfect information and really how that changes throughout like 
a massive draft window. We talk about these contests that have, you know, their, their draft window opens the day of the real NFL draft. And then it closes like the day before the season starts. That's like three and a half months plus of a draft window and how like your, your process is very different in a contest like that, as opposed to like the puppy where the draft window is only 10 days to 14 days. And a lot of why that idea of imperfect information and when you're drafting compared to the amount of information that we have, how are you managing that with respect to like when you're drafting? Like, are you doing a perfect like 50 drafts early before camp 50 after camp 50 during preseason? Like, how are you handling that? Last year I was pretty barbell. Um, this year I did, I, I just liked the early teams I drafted. And so I, I again, I'm doing barbell, but way more weighted early. And now I make content. So like, you know, my exposures are not even necessarily my opinions because I like to let guests make picks. And so, yeah, like I'm not, I'm, I'm just, you know, there's high stake options out there for me where I can get money down if I need to, to like even things out. And with underdog, like, look, I'm just not going to get the August soft, soft crowd probably. Like I'll just get it on another platform if I need to. But, but with the, the news cycle, I would say the main thing is like the getting the different at the top of the draft order and whatnot. Like you can of course do that in the puppy when the contest closes soon and you don't have to worry about risers and fallers over time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's super sharp, I think, because I think that the, just through human psychology and general tendencies, there is all this inherent bias that human beings just generally possess. And if like, if you maintain those biases as ADP is fluid and changing during these new cycles and during the, the, you know, the, just the fluidity of ADP over that entire three and a half plus months, like you're going to be making inherent mistakes with that process. So like viewing what I kind of preach and how I, I think is the best, most optimal way to fight those biases is think about just like player situations and remove the name almost entirely because it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. What matters is how we are optimizing our portfolio to be able to leverage the field and place ourselves in the most optimal position to make the most money when we're right. That's really what it boils down to. So it's interesting uh, that you guys both took a similar pro- approach to uh, drafting more early this year for whatever reason. Yeah, I was, uh, I went into the draft season, we'll call it. Um, hey guys, sorry, my, my computer uh, crapped for a second there, but I'm back. So I, I missed <laughs> the last 30 seconds. Um, That's hilarious because I would, my dog just jumped the fence. And while you were talking about something, when you were talking about the previous conversation, I was dead ass sprinting, like sweating bullets, trying to chase my dog down. (laughs) Um, Real quick. I thought of something else. The other thing I wanted to mention about the, especially for best ball mania three is over time. um, Like because players rise, it's okay to take the risers, but you want to get some players that also fall. So like, for my portfolio last year, like DeAndre Swift, I was just not taking him when he was a one-two turn pick, which he was earlier in the offseason. And then after a ship chasing draft, he became like a third and fourth round pick. And then I was getting exposure to him. Right. So like, and I I just like Daryl Henderson went from like a 12th round pick into a fourth round pick. So I just flat out was like, 
I'm not doing it. If Henderson is the piece you need, I just don't think I can make up this fourth round pick on the playoff teams. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. Gus Edwards had the same trajectory at the, about the same time last year as well. Yeah. But, but like someone like a Gabriel Davis or Mike Williams, like I'm not Xing those guys out of my portfolio, even though they've jumped three rounds. Um, even though I have a lot of exposure from early because I can get some guys that fell from where they were previously to still get unique combos from those, those Mike Williams and Gabriel Davis teams of the past. I like that. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. I think there, I think there's a built-in tendency for people to start Xing guys that jump, especially like handcuffs. Like if there's an injury in camp or something like that and handcuffs start jumping like pretty hard. Like I had that, thought process last year where it's just kind of like, Oh man, some guy's got this team already built, but he's got him with the 11th round like pick already. I'm drawing dead. Like, oh, okay, no more Gus Edwards. Like, you know what I mean? And I, I think that might be inherently flawed on my part because it sounds by, by the I, I sounds think of that's it. Like, I think it, it's like, it's so sub, you know, it's so subjective and such a guess, but I, I was, a, I think that's correct in the same wavelength. I think, okay. I think like Henderson and Edwards, what they were going at and what they became is too much. However, it's like a like a couple rounds isn't too bad. But if you go from like a fifteenth round to a third round, like I'm just gonna hope I had exposure earlier. And if I don't, hope that player's not a piece you need, which they probably won't be. Right. Let, let, let's uh can we relate that to some like recent news here because like some of the drafts i've been doing like i went pretty ham the last two days because there was no baseball to draft so i was i was getting my bbm fix in and um just noticing like jk dobbins falling and um and uh leonard fournette falling is that something where you'll like see a piece of news pop up like this and then be like oh i gotta jump in a draft right now and start scooping those falls or is it player dependent or like not as targeted as that it's kind of player dependent but like i think a lesson from last year with like Devonte adams rogers news for me was like always draft the uncertain situations and mm-hmm. yet like kind of yes like when there's a bit of useless news that like i don't think is that credible and like especially in the slow news cycle like if that causes a player to be cheap i generally want to be buying that dip always Right. Because okay. yeah. we're we're just like wrong so often. Like for my portfolio, uh Kenneth Walker is an example. Like I have a ton of penny from mm-hmm. like those players have essentially flipped, right? Mm-hmm. So I had a ton of penny from there. Or I was like as I like to call him Rashad Dollar because he won me the million. Um, let's go. I love that. But you know, and I was, and, and I had zero percent Kenneth Walker, right? And now Kenneth Walker has become at a good, like a good cost for me, um, on like a bit of useless news from some like 80 year old beat reporter, you know, like not that credible of a report. And so I'm like, yeah, it's great. Now give me the Kenneth Walker and I'm no longer taking penny. It's the most perfect example right there. Yeah, absolutely. And we might get something similar in that regard coming up here with Ronald Jones, like all that news that was coming today, like, it's for us to sift through. Like, are we going to start pushing up Jerick McKinnon now? Or are we going to be pushing down Rojo, pushing up CEH? Like, it's it, it's, it's Isaiah interesting. Pacheco or whoever. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. There's sixth or seventh round pick or whatever. Um, yeah. Who, who knows? Right. Like, it's it's us for the, the, and that's what makes this game like so 
quote unquote unsolvable is like, there's just so many external factors that push narrative at all avenues of every isolated draft window that, I mean, you could really go deep in the weeds and go back through your teams of last year and be like, wait, why did I do that? And then like link it to news on given days and see why ADPs shifted that way. And be, it'd be some crazy, insane, um, football bro analysis to do, but I think it'd be very interesting conceptually to just see how like these minute things actually shape the teams we build. Yeah. I mean, I I can give you an example. Two years ago, I don't think I was a good best ball player. Like I was profitable, but it was the early age on DK when the contest like overlaid. Um, But like, I remember the report, like Eric Ebron was like, yeah, Chase Claypool is going to be a problem in this league. Right, like that's not that credible of a thing, but I was like, okay, <laughs> great, sign up. And so I drafted, I drafted him on like all my all my teams, and then he had a four touchdown game and like was super high advance rate. You know, it was like, yeah. oh, well, if there's anything Eric Ebron knows, it's it's how to be a problem in this league. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> pretty credible right there. But d- d- different reason, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think that is about gonna do it. We're right about an hour right now. Again, Liam, I appreciate you coming on, man. This was uh, an absolute blast. For those listening, if you are not following Liam, you can find him on Twitter at chess, as in the game, C-H-E-S-S, Liam, L-I-A-M. You'll also be directed to his YouTube channel, cranking out content over there through that medium. Liam, any parting shots, man? No, man, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me on, guys. Enjoyed having this discussion, and I think... It's going to be something very interesting to look on in the future years, what best ball becomes. I think there's a large potential for it to latch on with the casual ESPN crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it just seems like that will eventually happen. Um, like, of course, the home leagues are always going to be there because that's fun. But, you know, like it's less work. It's easy. It's a lottery. Like if you're going to have one team, might as well be like a, $25 team that could win you $2 million. You know, like you, you're getting the dopamine just from checking the team on Sunday anyways, right? Like might as well actually be able to win some real money from it. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, thanks for having me on guys. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. And again, if you're not following John yet, I don't know what you're doing. Follow him on Twitter at roto underscore run. Gentlemen, this was an absolute blast. Expect this is going to be live on uh, Friday morning as they are every week. And we'll catch you up on who the next esteemed guest is going to be. That's going to do it for us. OWS, we'll see you in those lobbies. Later. Later.